Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 44 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a wicked, a wicked, a incredible general show lined up for you. Today, yes indeed, booyaka booyaka, big up to the incredible General Levy for the inspiration for today's intro. In a short while I'll be sharing with you an interview with my guest Dan Jones. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, also commenting on some of the content of those stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Dan Jones. We shall be exploring his aim to normalise hypnosis and his approach combining Ericsson and solution-focused elements to great effect with his clients. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's just hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. You can add your thoughts, comments, make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Dan Jones to Hypnosis Weekly. Dan Jones is someone who I've been aware of professionally for a number of years now and I had politely crossed paths with him online on a couple of occasions. In particular, I'd seen his love for the work of Milton Erickson and that he'd been a busy author publishing a number of books over the years. A few weeks ago, I saw that Dan had written a major article that featured in the Daily Telegraph newspaper here in the UK, which was entitled, How I Use Hypnosis to Cope with Asperger's Syndrome. I read it with great interest and immediately wanted to and contacted Dan to ask him if he'd like to come on the show and share some of his experience and also talk about his approach when working with clients. I'm really glad he accepted because I really loved having him on the show. I'm going to be inquiring about his approach later. But for now, get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume. Sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to be joined by the one and only Mr. Dan Jones. Dan, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Hi, Adam. Thank you. Um, so, 
tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, tell us, you know, how did you get into the hypnosis field? What's your background and how have you arrived at, at where you are now? Um, well, I first found hypnosis when I was about 13. Um, <clears throat> I've got Asperger's and I find that too much sensory input gets very overloading. I grew up in a household with three other brothers and mm. so it's quite a chaotic household so when I was a young child I discovered meditation although I didn't know it was meditation uh, I grew up in the woods uh, not literally in the woods but <laughs> right next to the woods yeah. and so I spent a lot of time in the woods and I would uh, try and find peace so I'd try and center myself didn't use any of this language back then um, when I was a small child uh, yeah. but I'd try and center myself I'd try and focus on pinpointing just one thing at a time like one bird sound find out where that bird is around me and I'd almost I'd close my eyes and try and imagine where is that bird based on rustling leaves and other sounds where is that bird and then I'd try and piece together the outer world inside my mind in small steps so I was doing that as a way of managing anxieties and managing sensory overload and all these problems that I was having. Yeah. Then as a 13-year-old, Paul McKenna came on TV doing a stage hypnosis TV show. Yeah. And the first thing I thought was completely the wrong thing, uh, now <laughs> I know more about hypnosis, was ah, if I knew how to do what he's doing, he's clicking his fingers and people are suddenly slumping in their chairs and then he's saying... I want you to do this. And then they're opening their eyes and doing it. I thought, you know, it's really difficult to understand communication. It's really difficult to understand fellow school kids, things like that. I thought that would make life so much easier if I can just click my fingers and all these people around me, school teachers, kids around me, will suddenly zonk out. And then I can say, just do this instead. And then click my fingers again, bring them around, and everything's going to work my way. That will make life so much easier. So I've got to know this <laughs> hypnosis thing. Yeah. Then I started learning about it and finding out that it's sort of an illusion. Um, it's not that it doesn't work. It's that it doesn't work how you think it works. Mm. Um, and often what's shown on TV is the end result of stuff that's been going on before. And these are people that have been shortlisted so to speak um in some way or another to be on stage so then i started having to think right so my plan's gone out the window a bit uh, this idea of controlling school teachers and things <laughs> yeah. isn't going to happen um so i found paul mckenna as his tv show became really successful so he wrote two books uh one was based on a documentary he did called the i think it was hypnotic world of paul mckenna and it was about treating phobias and um, how hypnosis sort of works, just a vague overview of hypnosis. And he also released a thicker book on hypnosis. And I'd read books prior to that on self-hypnosis because that's in shops. That's all I could find, yeah. uh, especially as a 13-year-old, was loads of books on here's a bunch of self-hypnosis scripts. And so I'd try and read them and try and adapt them to my own end. Paul McKenna's book said... Here is he on his documentary. He'd said, I can't show you how to do hypnosis on British TV, but I can show you with the sound off and tell you what the hypnotist who's hypnotizing this person is looking for. So that made me aware. Oh, so it isn't, I'm reading these scripts, it isn't about these words, it's about something you're looking for in the client. So, uh, again, not the language I was thinking back then. Mm. Um, but it was about what you're looking for. So I thought, oh, so actually there are things that you look for 
that let you know when someone's being hypnotized. So I started with some, someone with Asperger's. I started suddenly thinking, oh, so um, again, I wasn't diagnosed with Asperger's back there, but my thinking was so there's this sort of communication that goes on between people that isn't as I'm very good at obvious things. If someone thumps me in the face, I know they're probably angry, but I'm not very good if someone is huffing and puffing with me. I don't know that they're irritated. I would just keep talking and completely ignore them and not be, yeah. not have any social awareness at all. Yeah. But learning about hypnosis, all of a sudden it's right. So when you make eye contact in this way, too much eye contact can be used hypnotically, you know, gazing through someone's eyes and all these sort of things. And I thought oh, that's really interesting because I'm always being told to look at me when I'm talking to you. And so if looking at people all the time can hypnotize people, does that mean everyone's always hypnotizing everyone? Mm. And so I started watching people's eye contact and realizing that actually my belief of what I was being told is wrong. People don't make permanent eye contact because that freaks people out. What they do is they make eye contact for about five seconds-ish. So as they're listening to someone, then they break eye contact while they go inside their minds and start thinking, oh, what am I going to answer to what I'm being told? And then they look back at the person again and then they give an answer and the other person repeats the other side of the communication with their eyes. And so I was learning all this because I wanted to know how to hypnotize people. But actually, all of this nonverbal skill stuff that you learn when you're learning to do hypnosis is all the stuff that I was lacking and not that wasn't an innate part of who I was. It was stuff I had to learn as an actual structure, as something, you know, almost like learning a topic or learning a new yeah. language. So obviously most people will have that inbuilt, that they'll think, well, that's obvious. Doesn't everyone do that and know that? Well, having Asperger's, I don't know and do that. So I have to learn it. And so that's where hypnosis mainly helped. And then obviously on top of that, I was doing things like uh, self-hypnosis and mental rehearsal within self-hypnosis and all these things. Yeah. But that's where the hypnosis started with me. Uh, it didn't start because of a desire to help people or a desire. It started just initially as a desire to manipulate my environment to make it easier. And then a sudden obsessive fascination with the communication side of hypnosis and realizing that it is all about um, interpersonal communication and noticing things and reacting in certain ways to those things. And so I still, lots of subtle stuff I still have to do very consciously, but it's significantly helped my ability to actually survive in jobs and all these other areas of my adult life. And then when I reached, I think I was 19, I started working in home for people with mental health issues yeah. uh, with things like schizophrenia, manic depression, uh, severe OCD, things like that. And again, that just my skills with hypnosis and doing that kind of job and I was starting to get interested in the work of Milton Erickson at the time and um, you know all of that together uh, I think that really helped and then from then on I've worked within the care industry pretty much from then initially with adults with mental health issues then with children in children's homes uh, ranging from young children through to teenagers um, and then on to helping to set up a children's home. And then I moved into family therapy type work, uh, which I've pretty much done. That's been my main thing that I've ended up doing from then all the way on yeah. until now. Yeah. Yeah. And and so so 
the, the, the exploration with hypnosis initially began, it, it, was, it was almost a sort of byproduct of the learning that helped you deal with your own Asperger's. And gradually, as, as you learned more about it, it became something that you, that you did more fully. Mm, yeah, yeah. So initially, it was literally the people have often said to me, so how, uh, how does hypnosis help you with your Asperger's? What do you mean? And it's not so much that the hypnosis itself helped me yeah it's the hypnosis as a subject so i believe anyone with any kind of social communication difficulty that's able to learn so that's intelligent enough to learn so most people like with asperger's and things are reasonably intelligent could if they put their mind to it learn loads of techniques and loads of ways of actually communicating with people and understanding the communication of others and treating it i treat it almost like i see the world in patterns so I treat it almost, I know we all respond to patterns, but that's specifically how I see things. Mm. And so learning patterns of communication is something that I think most people similar to me could probably also do. Um, I watched a recent documentary and there was also an article about the same guy in the New Scientist magazine a few weeks back about a guy who had transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, mm. to try and alter his brain functioning temporarily to help him with his Asperger's. The idea was that if a part of his brain shut down and other parts turned on, he'll be able to notice minimal cues that people give off. Yeah. And it worked. And what the scientist said was, we can't understand why, because normally with transcranial magnetic stimulation, the brain goes back to normal. So once the magnet's all turned off, the brain eventually reorientates, gets, you know, blood flow changes again, everything goes back to normal and your special skills or whatever that you've developed from having that fade away. And they said, we can't understand why his special skills haven't faded away. He still seems to notice minimal cues. Yeah. And I was watching the documentary, and as I say, it's also in New Scientist magazine, and I was thinking, but that's logical common sense. My brain didn't suddenly turn off once I learned, oh, people make eye contact in this special way, people communicating. Once I was aware of that, it's like when I was learning NLP and learning about eye accessing cues. Um, I know there's, my belief is many people teach it too rigidly. Um, it's more about just people seem to stick to the same patterns. It's not that everyone looks up and right and that means a certain thing. Yeah. But once you become aware that people do do these sort of things, you see it all the time. Yes. <laughs> you, know, it doesn't, you can't unsee it. Like with magic tricks, you know, once you know how a trick is done, it's very difficult to unsee it. Some people can do it like a card trick and palming a card. Some people can do it more impressively than others and make it harder to notice. But it's very hard to unsee something once you know it. And that's my opinion with whether it's me learning hypnosis and learning about communication because of hypnosis or this guy having his brain zapped. Yeah. Once your world has this new information in it and that enters your memory and it's part of who you are and what you learn and what you know, it's hard to suddenly have that shut down. Yeah. So, yeah, that's sort of what happened with me, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, that, that's fascinating. Reminds me of the, the classic quote, um, you know, once you've, once, you've once you've turned into a butterfly, there's no going back to the caterpillar. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated with that. Um, um, so let, let, let's get focused on, on hypnosis a little bit more mm. then. Mm. Um, Dan, over throughout your own journey and throughout the years, um, um, tell us a little bit about how you conceptualize hypnosis. So, so how, how do you define hypnosis? How did 
do you arrive at that definition and um, how do you explain it to to either your clients or you know if you're um, being caught in a corner, uh, or, or, or trapped in the kitchen at a party, uh, and someone's asking you about it. Um, 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 how do you define it and explain it? Well, if someone trapped me in the kitchen at a party, they <sighs> would be desperate to get out because I love hypnosis, so I won't stop talking about it, and they'll be thinking, I really wish I hadn't started on this now. Um, initially, I used to use the stock sort of answers, you know, the ones I'd find in books. I'd use mm-hmm. everyone else's answer. Um, obviously, as I've grown and developed, I've found that every single hypnotist uses their own definition and everyone has a an answer for what they think hypnosis is and yeah. there's no nice, clear definition. My belief nowadays is that hypnosis is nothing special. Um, I would almost, well, I would say hypnosis technically doesn't exist, that all hypnosis is is the same as, say, priming. So mm. whether you do, uh, I see hypnosis largely in the same vein as priming research and stuff like that, where it's, you know, you sort a bunch of words to do with the elderly into sentences and suddenly you're walking slightly slower away from the table than you were when you walked to the table or you sort a bunch of words to do with youthfulness yeah. and you walk away faster than you Mm. walk to the table or you see images of a group of scientists and you do better on IQ tests. You see an individual scientist like Einstein who you know you're probably not as bright as and you do worse on IQ tests. So to me, that doesn't have a specific brainwave pattern at all. Uh, I know some hypnotists will talk about things like alpha states and these sort of things. I think that's all rubbish. I think if you've got an alpha state, it's probably because you're relaxed or something. It's nothing to do with the hypnosis. Um, So I don't think hypnosis has any kind of defined brainwave pattern or anything like that. I also don't think people are play acting and playing along, uh, at least not on any kind of a conscious level. Some people might do, but I think if you're hypnotized, that's not what you're doing. Mm. Um, I think it's no different to the fact that someone doesn't intentionally think because I've just sorted a bunch of words to do with the elderly, I suppose I better walk out of this room a bit slower and look like I'm old. Uh, I think there's no brainwave pattern to that. It's just certain neural networks are stimulated around certain ideas and those ideas mean something to you as an individual. So someone could sort words to do with elderly and it may have a different meaning and so it's not going to make them walk slower so it's not a hundred percent foolproof which Mm. obviously hypnosis as you would know not everyone is as good at being hypnotized as everyone else you know some people you just think i'm so lucky to have you volunteer for this demonstration other people you think i'll get through this demonstration but i would have preferred the person next to you to have come up here instead um so some people are much easier to hypnotize than others and i think that's no different to the fact that we all respond to different things differently so if someone saw a picture of einstein and thought you know what i am actually cleverer than him they're probably going to do better on an iq test because they've seen a picture of einstein and that's their belief Um, so even though they won't necessarily think that out loud or even give it much conscious thought if that's their genuine belief then that's how they respond to that stimulus so that's how i see hypnosis as being that all it is is a case of stimulating certain ideas and that's all you're doing whether you do it very overtly like directly telling someone what to do or very covertly like the 
priming experiment where they give someone a hot drink or a cold drink in a lift going up to a room and then they, the person gets interviewed and the person being interviewed is then asked what did you think of the interviewer so someone else who's walking them back out again says we're, we're doing we're hiring someone and that person's applied for the job what did you think of the interviewer and if they carry a warm drink up to the room they warm to the person and they say oh i thought they were quite nice and friendly if they carry a cold drink they think the person's a bit standoffish and a bit cold mm. so you're priming with an idea and my view is that's what you do when you're doing reasonably covert or indirect hypnosis, that you're priming ideas through perhaps using metaphors, um, previous case examples, however you're choosing to do it. You're just priming an idea for a way that that person can take it on board and run with it. Um, at parties and things, I would just wouldn't say any of that because... <laughs> People would glaze over um, at a party or something. I just say that all hypnosis really is is um, a focused state of attention, just focusing your attention on an idea in the same way. And I always seem to use this example in the same way that if someone's trying to park a car and they've got the radio on, and they've got a friend sat next to them who's nattering away to them. They'll if they suddenly find that parking's difficult, like the car park is a really narrow space, or there's some pillars around it, and you think, "Oh, I'm really struggling to park here." Then what you do is you turn the radio down, and you might even ask your friend to get out the car and go ahead of you, and that you'll catch them up. And you do that so that all your attention is focused just on parking the car, not on parking the car, listening to the radio, listening to your friend thinking about your own thoughts and how you think you're being judged and all these other things that are going yeah. on. And so I, I say that that's what hypnosis is like. It's like saying, you know what, you've got this problem or whatever you're trying to deal with or achieve. All your attention is jumping around to millions of different things. And if you can narrow your attention down to just what you need to be doing here and now, you'll be so much better at it and get so much better results. And that's essentially what you do with hypnosis, whether it's actually I'm really good at hallucinating if all I focus on is trying to hallucinate rather mm. than trying to hallucinate in everyday life while you're sat in a room feeling self-conscious, you know, looking at what the time is and thinking about other things and, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, I say if you just focus on one thing and shut everything else out, you're going to be better at doing it and that's what you do with hypnosis. Someone, either yourself or someone else, can help you to narrow your focus just to that one thing that you need to focus on here and now. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, there's there's so much in that that really appeals to me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'd love to know then, you know, um, um, about some of your influences, Dan. Um, um, mm. who, who are your major influences in this field? And perhaps you could tell us about some of the books, some of the authors that have taught you the most and teachers that have been the most influential upon you and perhaps some of the reasons why. Mm. Um my biggest influence is probably Milton Erickson, uh, just because I think it's a breath of, breath of fresh air, his kind of approach. Um, I've got a huge library of Erickson work from his stuff, plus his students' works and all these other, you know, there's loads of books um, and videos and all sorts of things. Um just the fact that he was willing to think, you know what, every client is actually different. And if you spend all your time just trying to use one approach and one way of doing things with everyone, you're not going to have as great success and you're not being respectful to each individual if you're trying to fit everyone into your 
way of doing things. And um, the people that have inspired me through my life have been people, and the people who I still admire largely, have been people who don't think everyone has to conform to something. So I'm a huge fan of Bruce Lee and Duke Kune Do because of the idea of you know we're all we all have some similarities most people will have two arms two legs and be reasonably able-bodied or whatever mm. so you've got that to use but we're all different some people are strong some people are weak some people are um, better at one thing than another maybe more flexible so you know, with bruce lee the whole thing was about learning a wide range of things and then finding what seems to be right for you that works for you based on your skill set, your personality. Um, I'd be no good at the whole sort of authoritatively dictating to people, you will go into hypnosis now or anything like that. Yeah. I'm not that kind of an individual. Um, I'm not even a huge fan particularly of doing rapid inductions. I'll do them perhaps, say, for a demonstration or something, but I'm. I feel more uncomfortable doing that than just gently chatting to somebody and conversationally moving a conversation from say normal awareness into gradually getting more hypnotic or something i prefer that gentle more relaxed approach and i think mm. yeah so so i've warmed to people like stephen brooks and his approach um mark tyrrell uh, from uncommon knowledge and his approach as well um, so I've warmed to people that do that kind of more sort of we're just having a chat and it's a therapeutic helpful chat hopefully yeah. um, rather than a, a hard and fast or some kind of you know look at me and how clever I am I'm going to do this really incredible technique or uh, just something that puts the client at the center and I think I know some of Ericsson's stories are very extreme with some of the things he did and you'd never get away with half of them nowadays I know there's lots of stuff that's blown out of proportion and people get a mythology. Um, but generally, his approach was it needs to be about the client. You know, he wasn't always indirect. He didn't spend all his time just sitting around telling metaphors all the time. Um, you know, he was direct if he needed to be. And if it was right for the situation, he was indirect if he needed to be. And it was right for the situation. And he also had lots of things that didn't work but was very good at utilization. Yeah. So half the time things didn't work. He managed to turn it around into something that became success. And I had a client who said that to me once, said uh, a woman came to see me to quit smoking and, and she was nervous being hypnotized. And so she said, can I bring my husband along? He came in, he said to me afterwards, it's incredible. She's never been hypnotized before, but somehow she managed to get everything right. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, no, she didn't. I wish she'd got everything right. It was so much easier. But I kept on my default setting is that's right. Yeah. So, you know, go for an arm levitation. It stays exactly where it is. That's right. It's so heavy. It seems to be stuck right where it is. Yeah. So you're going to go even deeper. So um, I liked that kind of idea. And I definitely, I when I worked in mental health, um, a guy had OCD. He was being bullied by the other residents. He would urinate all over the toilet seat because he wouldn't touch himself because of his fear of germs. Yeah. And he was just having a miserable time in the home. And no one was helping him. Uh, essentially, what we were there for is to make sure that people didn't get better because, or else they might leave the home. And um, so I got him a box of sterile latex gloves and said, here, use those. And to me, that was a simple solution to the problem. He was now able to, I showed him how to use it, how to take the, the gloves off without 
touching the in, the outside of the gloves and all these things, all of a sudden he's able to uh, touch himself to go to the toilet. He's able to clean up after himself. It stopped the bullying. It stopped a lot of his anxieties, and it helped a lot. So that came from obviously me reading about things like the work of Milton Erickson and utilization and all these sort of aspects. So I think he's my biggest influence. Yeah. And after him was Stephen Brooks. Um, back in the 90s, I saw his um, training in indirect hypnosis video cassettes back then um, and thought, yeah, I like this idea with Avril. And I thought, I like this idea, this yeah. nice, gentle, uh, relaxed approach to hypnotizing people and working with people. And then I have got about 40 of his uh, DVDs and things now. Um, yeah. And for authors, again, I think mainly the work of Milton Erickson. Um, I think my favorite over the last decade or so has been moving into Rossi, uh, Ernest Rossi's yes. work, um, mainly because I always feel that Ernest Rossi doesn't get enough positive attention for his contribution to things. Um, people like Bruce Lipton gets loads of attention for his work on things like epigenetics uh, and in that field. But I feel people like Ernest Rossi, whose books are a little bit hard going at times, um, but they are really, you know, really good. They're they're yeah. really. I like the idea of it linking back to we are a whole mind body being. We're not just a mind and changing just the thinking or something. We are a whole being, and uh, it shows. You know, if you make these changes, uh, I've got uh, a few years ago. Ernest Rossi bought out a DVD called "We Light and Brighten the Lamps of Human Consciousness," and. Mm. Um, on that he's virtually crying you can know, see how emotional he is where he's saying i'm really pleased to announce this um early data but this data about how we've shown that there are these epigenetic changes that take place over a three-month period from the point of having brief therapy and brief therapy normally takes about three months so this was showing that actually phys physiologically these changes occur from the minute you've had your brief therapy session and continue on just from that one single session, continue on for about three months, which is roughly what it would take for someone to make those necessary changes. So I, I love his work and mm. um, I think it is a bit hard going for someone who's perhaps not frequently reading that kind of book. It's not like yeah. a pop psychology book, his books. Um, but if you can read them, I think they're brilliant yeah. and highly informative. Um, unfortunately, there's not enough research in them. So you, obviously, I, I'm very sort of into evidence-based stuff. And so obviously, they're promising, but I'd like a lot more scientists out there doing yeah. more of that sort of research. Yeah. I, was, um, I was speaking at a conference a couple of years ago and um, one of the other speakers was a gentleman by the name of Norman Walton. And um, um, Norman had trained directly with Ernest Rossi and, and referred to him incredibly fondly and affectionately and spoke incredibly highly of Ernest Rossi and kept referring to him as Ernie. Um, they were obviously mm -hmm. pals and um, referred to him as Ernie. And, and whenever anybody talks about Ernest Rossi, I just instantly slip into thinking the word Ernie repeatedly. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, um, uh, one of the points you made, um, I didn't want to interrupt, one of the points you made quite early on um, um, in replying to that question, 
I, I think is incredibly important. And I hope I hope people really latched on to a point that you made there, which was about um, finding what's right for you, what, what 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 sort of fits your style as as a person as well, you know, to, in order to make you feel and be congruent with with the kind of applications that you are doing you know um um because because on the flip side of the coin i i struggle a bit with 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 some of the the language patterning for example mm, mm. it doesn't tend to fit my style so well i i certainly would not say that i was authoritarian but um but 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 plain speaking tends to tends to suit my style a, a bit more and i feel more comfortable with that and i like to think that my clients benefit as a result of me being more comfortable in my own skin so to speak and so you know i think that was really important and and, and i really really enjoyed the way that you explained that um i'm, I'm Dan, throughout your experience and throughout the the time that you've been that you've been working and exploring the field of hypnosis, what, what's been what's been the most impressive application of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed? Um, I think there's sort of two elements of this. There's some things that are incredibly that I always think are incredibly impressive, but they're very common as sure. well, uh, and. So they're perhaps impressive in a different way because they're yeah. common. Yeah. Uh, so that's things like I worked with a woman who was probably about 75-ish. Um, she'd uh, been agoraphobic for decades, uh, something like 20 or 30 years or something, uh, following three incidents that happened really close together. One, her walking along a footpath and being knocked over by a cyclist. Um, two, her... Um, I can't remember what it was, something like she was crossing a road and hit by a car or something. And then three, she was in her car thinking it's not safe to not be in a car. Yeah. And as she pulled out of a junction, another car hit her car. And so she thought, well, it's not safe to go outside then, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. And um, it was only when her son was ill in hospital and she suddenly thought, what if I don't, I can't actually get out of the house and go and see him? What if he dies in hospital or something? That she then decided to do something about it. And within half an hour we were sat on the seafront having ice cream together talking about you know what she's going to do now she can go outside Wonderful. and there was more i had to do a lot more work with her but from the agoraphobia point of view so for example she hadn't been in a car for 30 years driving it so she was nervous about you know can i still drive and so there's lots of other work needed doing but just that element of yeah, it's the one that always sticks in my mind that yeah. I was sat on the beach half an hour into a session uh, where we'd walked around the corner from her house round to the seafront, having ice cream with her, chatting you know, about how things can be, you know, how her future could be. Yeah. And things like using the fast phobia cure, the rewind technique, whatever someone wants to call it, it's such an effective approach um, that... I'm not so, that's what I mean by I'm not so impressed with it being like something that I think, oh, wow. But the results you get and the life-changing uh, impact of it sometimes, yeah. I'm always impressed with. So when someone has suddenly had their life turned around in a way that, to them, that they had one life and now they've got a vastly different 
life. Yeah. Um, the most I, impressive. I, I never want to get blasé about that, by the way. You know, no, I, I mean, no. I mean, I, I, it, it puts a smile on my face to hear you say that because um, I, I would never want to get blasé about the day to day stuff that we do as hypnotherapists mm, because, mm. you know, it really ought to continue to impress us. You know, that kind of thing. I just think sounds so wonderful. Excuse mm, me, interrupting mm. you, Dan. Yeah. And that is. And I think that is wonderful. And I think um, it's easy to have something as almost like a conveyor belt therapy where you're so used to it you stop noticing how incredible it is for the people on the receiving end of it sometimes right, right. Um, and you can almost then I think if you reach that point you can then almost stop actually paying attention to the clients because they you just they just come in and you think I'll just quickly do this technique and then we'll move on um, the most impressive thing I think that was sort of unexpected was somebody in passing had mentioned that um, they'd got a punctured eardrum or something like that. And um, so when they breathe in and out, they hear a sort of airy, mm. whistly sound going in and out of their ear. And they said, it's really annoying. It happens all the time. And they just sort of mentioned it in passing. And um, and then a few days later, I, had, I was, they wanted to know something about hypnosis and said, yeah, would you hypnotize me? Let me know what it feels like uh, I just want to know what it's like to be hypnotized and so I did and I decided just to drop in a sentence uh, sort of indirectly not expecting anything I'd not known anything about this but I was hypnotizing them so I wanted to see if I could do something like almost give them a gift or something you know that kind of mentality of mm. rather than wasting an opportunity of just hypnotizing someone and then saying you know three two one you're back in the room how is that for you you know rather than just sort of doing that I thought let's talk about your ear and I wasn't expecting anything out of it because it was a genuine hole in the eardrum it's not like it could be fixed uh, but it was gone as soon as they came out of hypnosis even though I never directly you know they were inexperienced they didn't know that I was I said one sentence that linked to it um, and yet that they were sat opposite me talking about the experience and then they started holding their nose and looking odd and then scrunching up their face and mm. so I said what's wrong what's what's going on and uh, he said um, my ear's better I can't hear the whistling in my ear something's happened and um, it had wow. fixed his ear and I, I still keep in touch <laughs> with that guy and years and years later he still doesn't have that problem uh, he was told by doctors that it couldn't be sorted because it was too near to um, arteries and things that go up to his brain uh, That if they tried to get into his ear and do anything with it. So they said that you know, he'll normally, a bit like with um, any constant stimulus, he'll normally be able to not be aware of it, but any time he's quiet or, you know, not really focusing on doing something he'll probably be aware of it but it won't go it will never go away uh, and it genuinely had gone away and uh, he said straight after the session his ear felt really warm and he didn't know why uh, so my assumption is that it was probably a really small hole and that all that had happened was that enough blood flow had gone there maybe to apply enough pressure or something to seal the hole um, that's my mm. hypothesis of what I think Mm. I don't obviously think suddenly skin grew back rapidly in the space of five minutes, um, but I. Th but to me, that was an unexpected physical 
change that transformed his life because um, anyone with tinnitus or anything like that clearly it can be very distressing yeah. to have it always there um yeah, and, yeah so that's... and and the irony being that very often we're not we're not even attempting to to cure it but no. help <laughs> but, but help people learn how to habituate it or or cope with the symptoms of it better um wow that's uh, that's fascinating um um absolutely um, um dan if if you could go back to when you started out um, um as as a hypnotherapist as a hypnosis professional you know knowing what you know now mm. um um because i mean you you've explored this field and you know you've been prolific with your own writing and so on um, is there anything that you'd do differently and if so if so what and and what advice would the person that you are today give the younger you and would you mind ex extending that advice to to the hypnotherapists that are tuned in and listening here today mm. i think the biggest thing, and it's something that I probably spend most of my time um, telling most people that email me, um, is that hypnosis is nothing special. So almost get over yourself. You know, yes. <laughs> hypnosis is nothing special. It's not difficult to do. The difficult bit is knowing what to do when you've hypnotized someone or yeah. know what to do around the hypnosis, like the therapy. So I see hypnotherapy as literally just hypnosis being used with a form of therapy i don't see hypnosis as a therapy um and i don't think suggestion hypnotherapy is particularly effective for lasting results i think it can be effective with people that are very responsive to it short term but most people i think if you know if i told someone smoking is um anytime you think of cigarettes you're going to feel really sick and you're never going to want one and and i did things like very direct aversion therapy to smoking or something someone highly responsive may well respond really well to that in the short term but if smoking i treat most problems as being people's attempted solutions so if smoking was actually their solution for managing stress they're going to go back to smoking because it's what they know to manage their stress so even if it works short term they'll probably go back to it so the biggest advice i'd give myself is that actually to do the hypnosis part you know it's not difficult it's not hard to learn um it, you need to know enough to make sure that you don't sort of start saying things like um you know you can ignore those big, thick chains of despair that are wrapped around your throat or something that's actually going to have a negative <laughs> effect on someone because I think some yeah. people can accidentally fall into thinking they're doing something positive but actually yeah. they're using someone's metaphor and making the, the person yeah, I, worse. I, I mean, I, I'm laughing, but it is terrifying. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and people do do things like that accidentally. So I think as long as you know enough to know that you can do non-harmful hypnosis you know, hypnosis isn't going to harm and distress someone um then i would say to myself you know get over yourself the whole confidence thing all you're doing is chatting to people you don't have to think too hard about responding to the sentence someone's just said to you and i see hypnotic communication no different to responding to a normal conversation mm. essentially uh, and I think that's when when I made that realization, that was when I leaped in ability from being an unconfident person who 
always thought oh, it'd be best if I just prepared a script just in case I need it yeah. uh, to someone who would just sit down with someone, uh, whether it's in front of an audience of people or whatever, and just do the hypnosis as it is and um, not worry about it and just think, well, what happens is what's going to happen and it's what's right for this individual because they're only going to respond in the way that's right for them. Yeah. Even if that's not what I want them to do, they will only respond in what's right for them and what I want isn't important really. Um, that's sort of secondary. I can have an idea of a path but you know that path may not be the right one for them. So uh, like with phobia cure, you know, I can have in my mind before arriving uh, with a client and say, think to myself, right, it's probably going to be a, a case of just doing, say, the rewind technique or the fast phobia cure. And I might walk in there and find actually that's completely the inappropriate thing to do. It's not relevant. It's not going to work with them for some reason. You know, lots that can happen. Um, so I think just by treating people as individuals and thinking it's much easier than you realize. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think that um, I think there's 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 so much of use in that because I think you know it, it does tend to get overcomplicated, and a lot of people can sometimes um, you know because I remember um, I remember I mean you mentioned Stephen Brooks earlier. Um, I'm, you know I, I was on a course um, of Stephen Brooks uh, when I was very young, and um, and I remember thinking you know. How on earth? How on earth am I ever going to learn how to speak like him? You know, um, um, how on earth am I ever going to be able to to learn to better do this this language so fluently and and so on? And and uh, even though even though in some ways I perceived it as being really challenging, I think you know as soon as I started thinking in a lot more simplistic terms, it became a lot easier for me. Mm. Um, and I think I've gone through that as well. I've gone through the um, Starting out with things like you know script books and all these sort of things, moving on to learning all the Ericksonian stuff, being able to do all of the really impressive sounding you know complex double binds and uh, all these other things that sound really good and really good confusion stuff, uh, mixing left and right and forget and remember and all these different things i 've gone all the way through that, and now I probably don't do hardly any of that. I might throw in. Like if uh, somebody says to me, um, you know, I say to them, so as a way of normally distracting them from whatever they perhaps are doing in their head, how do your hands feel now? And they're well, they're okay. Which hand feels warmest? Oh, my left hand feels warmer. Oh, so your left hand, left, right there feels warmer than the right hand, left over there. Okay, and then that will be the extent of what I do in that session in relation to anything perhaps language pattern-wise. Mm. Uh, the rest is more just normal chat i don't want it's like my view with solution focused working i don't want to sound like a therapy i want to, yeah. or uh, or some I, I want to sound like a normal human being uh like someone that's having a normal chat i don't want to sound like i'm trying to do something manipulative or uh, that's just not me i just want yeah. people to think this is just normal conversation um, occasionally you need to shake up someone's thinking a bit so you might throw a bit in there just to make them pay a bit more attention to try and follow what you're doing or whatever but you know I don't need to do a whole session where I spend an hour doing double binds and confusing language and the person leaves thinking that was an exhausting session I have no idea what yeah. he actually said yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, um yeah I, I get that um um you um 
you you, you mentioned earlier about um um about your about evidence base um, mm. um and, and about how how much it appeals to you and and that you like to slot in with it can you just expand upon that a little bit perhaps uh, just share some of your thoughts um, with regards to evidence based approaches to hypnosis yeah uh, well, sort of an initially coming back to a point that I made earlier that you also picked up on earlier about, um, you know, doing what fits with you, um, that doing what fits with you is in context with within an evidence-based framework. Yeah. So, for example, if what fitted with me was, um, I don't know, swinging crystals around someone's head and chanting and then letting energy somehow flow out of them, then I'd be thinking that I'm in the wrong place because uh, I wouldn't say that's evidence-based. So it's got to be within the evidence. Um, so, for example, um, the, the evidence in relation to hypnosis is that there's no, you know, Ericksonian approach, um, as it's researched at least, and traditional hypnosis as it's researched neither one does any better than the other uh, whether you're indirect or direct whatever it doesn't make any significant difference in outcomes mm. so my view is from that level it doesn't matter on the spectrum of uh, you know on the sort of big continuum of where how you could do hypnosis it doesn't matter particularly uh, whether you like an approach that's more direct or an approach that's more um conversational you're at, you're at least on the continuum of what there's evidence gathered for i think there's far more evidence for traditional approaches than um ericksonian just because there's more research that's been done in that um but i don't see that there's much difference uh, what the difference is is the type of clients you might get so some clients might be happier to go to someone who tells them what to do and is very direct someone else might be happier having someone almost there as a guide mm. in the same way that someone might be happy to go to say a Rogerian counselor that just feeds back um, and uh, reflects things back. And someone else might prefer to go to say a cognitive behavioral therapist who will be able to just say, here are some ideas and, you know, here's some way, some techniques you can do or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. You know, people have different ways of working. So I think you might get different clients. Um, most of the books that I read are not normally about hypnosis or therapy specifically. They're books about what works in therapy. So books by people like John uh, Norcross um, around how relationship with the other person is important. Um, there's research around how um, if you believe in your approach, that makes you more effective regardless yeah. of your approach. Uh, there's research around how if on a scale of 0 to 10, you rate yourself about a 5, you're probably a very, very good therapist. Mm. <laughs> on a scale yeah. of 0 to 10, if you rate yourself a 9, you're probably not a very good therapist <laughs> um, because the person who rates themselves a 5 probably continues uh, professional development, continues to learn because they think, I'm only a 5, I've got to keep learning and improving. I've got to ask every client... Um, you know, how did I do? What could I have done better? And on my forms, one of the questions um, so at the end is, you know, what could I have done better? What would you have liked to have had done to, that would have improved this session or improved our work together? And I want the honest 
feedback and I normally uh, joke with them to depotentiate any not putting a good answer down uh, about how if they say that I'm perfect I'm not going to learn anything and I'll be really disappointed because I love learning and yes. um, so normally I try and make them laugh and do something around that so that they'll mark me down and give me something that I can learn from um, and I think you know, that's I, incredibly I, important. I think so too I, I really take my hat off to that because um, you know I I, I also think it takes some balls as a therapist to do that because I think a lot mm. of people are, are afraid of feedback because of um, perhaps a, a, an inability to not take it personally, you know, mm. Um, mm. Um, a, a, an inability to learn from it. Um, and, and asking, you, you know, I, I, I tell my own students how vital it is at the end of sessions to ask, what you know potentially what could we be doing better here mm, or, or, or what do you you know what's what's working best and so on and mm. and open for that because even if you do get something that potentially can feel a little bit uncomfortable at first you get the opportunity to act upon it mm. and and to do something about it and I think that's so important you know it, it helps develop the therapeutic relationship and and everything else you know mm. I, I, I'm really pleased to hear that I you know I think that's such an important thing and there are things that you do that you don't even realize you do that the only way you're going to know is if somebody tells you and I think the best clinical supervisors really um, are your own clients um, so not in terms of like dealing with issues and um, yeah. working through it but in terms of giving you feedback in relation to your actual practice you know, you can tell a clinical supervisor something and they'll be able to feedback based on what you've told them maybe you could have a video recording maybe they could watch a session but if you're with an actual client, um, obviously you, it's not about your, it's not your space, it's their space, they're the client. Uh, so you don't want it to be all about you. But just asking for the feedback um, is very important. So say, for example, uh, a large amount of my work has been working with families and working with children as well. And so say somebody tells me about being sexually abused when they're a young child, if I show an expression on my face of disgust or something or anger or anything like that that makes them even if I don't pick up on the, what it makes them if it makes them think oh I don't know if I want to keep telling him this maybe I won't go much deeper into it I'll change the subject in a minute and yeah. we'll move off I may not know that I may not know they've had that thinking going on in their head I may not have picked up on that at all but at the end you know when they said well you know when I said that to you and you showed that face of disgust. I just thought, oh, my God, should I have not told him? Have I just offended him in some, some way? Is it really that disgusting that I shouldn't talk about it? Mm. And so I would then be thinking, well, if I've made a face that's actually making you not seek the support that you know you're wanting to seek, I need to stop making that face because <laughs> yeah. that could happen to someone else. And yeah. I need you to tell me that. I need to say to you, what did the face look like? You know, talk me through it how how did I look and I need to practice that get an idea of what it feels like to make that face so that I can know that I'm not going to make that facial expression again so I'm not going to make the same mistake with another client yeah. and hopefully they then feel that I respect them and that actually that's not a judgment on them or what they've told me that was a complete accident it was an unconscious response I didn't know I did it you know, thank you for telling me I can do something about it now so that I'm better for you as a therapist so I think things like that are incredibly important to do. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that's 
you know, so, we, we we run the risk as well mm. of, of of editing responses that we get from clients based upon our own beliefs, our own bias, mm. our mm. own biases, and um, I, I think being able to understand our own beliefs and our own biases, you know, what what, what information we're editing and so on, mm. um, I'm really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. Dan, you've been incredibly generous with uh, uh, within this interview and, and, and the things you've been sharing. Um, um, we're going to talk some more um, in a short while about more specifically about your approach. Um, for now, where can people go to learn a little bit more about your work, your approach to hypnosis and so on? Um, the best place is danjoneshypnosis.com. Uh, that's where all my hypnosis stuff is, lots of articles, lots of videos, um, courses all sorts of things online courses all sorts of things are on there yeah um and i've also got alt-solutions.org and that covers the other little bits and pieces that i'm into so parenting work um self-publishing because all my books have been uh self-published and so i sort of do some work around that so that covers other bits and pieces as well but yeah. danjoneshypnosis.com is the best one for all the hypnosis stuff Great, and we'll make sure that there's uh, links that there are links to to both of those sites um, um, on uh, this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. Um, um, Dan, thank you very much for that. Um, um, for those of you listening, we'll be back with Dan Jones in a few minutes' time. I really enjoyed that interview. As I said, we'll be back with Dan for our professional discussion shortly. On to this week's Hypnosis in the News then. This week's um, uh, Hypnosis in the News is, is something I'd like to address with regards to how many hypnotherapists relate to the subject hypnotherapy in a very particular way within the media and um, almost in a way that is creating a, a cult, uh, an undercurrent of anti-intellectualism and seeming ignorance in the field of hypnotherapy. A little while back, uh, one of the guests on this very podcast started a thread in a forum that he runs at Facebook about his interview and discussion with me here on Hypnosis Weekly. Um, and many people discussed his views, his stance, and those who tuned in gave feedback and so on. And that typically happens. And that's one of the aims of this show, to stimulate debate um, um, after all. And it was lovely to see. Another former guest who featured on the podcast also wrote um, um, a, a particular comment um, on that thread once he'd listened to the episode. Uh, and please note, this is just a single sentence lifted from a very positive, fuller review. And he wrote, I enjoyed hearing you give evidence base a good hard slapping and for all the correct reasons. I could almost feel Adam twitch as I know this is a thing of his. Ha <laughs> ha! Now, this is very observant. You know, I do have to conceal the fact that I'd love to interject and refute elements of what my guests say. Um, um, because, you know, at times I do have major differences with them. However, each episode, you know, it's not about me, this podcast. It's about my guests and about me allowing them to have their say. And also a major theme of this podcast is to embrace the diversity, remain friends. I don't think anyone would wish to be a guest on this Hypnosis Weekly podcast if all I did was attempt to highlight major flaws in things they 
said according to what evidence suggests. You know, I don't think the comment had any ill intention behind it, and certainly not as far as I was concerned, but it illustrates something that I feel strongly about um, with the way in which hypnosis and hypnotherapy professionals tend to portray or talk about um, um, hypnosis and and, and evidence-based approaches uh, within all forms of media. Um, very recently, I had my eye caught by a, a brilliant, utterly brilliant video clip featuring Barack Obama uh, that's doing the rounds on the Internet and is entitled Ignorance is Not a Virtue. And I encourage all of you to uh, listen to the first two minutes, uh, to watch the first two minutes of that video, which I'll include at this episode's um, page. So I think they really articulate my own feelings with regards to the field of hypnotherapy. Um, And I just want to, to sort of echo some opening words of Barack Obama's. He says, facts, evidence, reason, logic and understanding of science. These are qualities you want in. And he carried on talking. But I would interject and add my own completion of this sentence by saying the word hypnotherapists, for example. And there tends to be a fair amount of anti-intellectualism and sneering at evidence-based approaches within the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy. And often those who speak up and out against it really offer very weak and implausible arguments against the evidence. Like they somehow know far better than researchers about research design. Like they know far better than people who have studied at a very high level for years and years and made major contributions, breakthroughs and advancements to our field. Maybe it's just a trend apparent in society in general currently. For example, in the book The Dumbest Generation, author Mark Bowerlein reveals how an entire generation of youth is being dumbed down with a seeming aversion to reading anything of substance and an addiction to the drivel that's poured out via social media. Um, and, and heck, perhaps I'd better stop sharing Facebook memes here then um, um, and, and over at uh, over at Facebook rather. Um, I think the vast majority of hypnotherapists are of a very different generation, however, and we can't really use that as an excuse. Why is there a disturbing trend of anti-intellectualism in the hypnotherapy field then? Why is there such a chasm between frontline hypnotherapists and the academics and researchers within the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy? Why do so many hypnotherapists attempt to replace intellectualizing with ignorance or self-righteousness, for example. Journalist Charles Pierce, author of Idiot America, suggests the following perspective. The rise of an idiot America today represents, for profit mainly, but also, and more cynically, for political advantage in the pursuit of power, the breakdown of a consensus that the pursuit of knowledge is a good It also represents the ascendancy of the notion that the people whom we should trust the least are the people who best know what they are talking about. In the new media age, everybody is an expert. And there's much here um, and within that quote that feels relevant to me within the field of hypnotherapy for sure. Many do have a financial interest in ensuring their own perspective is not questioned for sure. Also, the interest that keeps them being a revered expert with elevated status within the field. I mean, who would respect those who are shown to be outmoded, outdated and superseded, for example? It's in their interests to keep you know, promoting what they deem to be the right way as the only way. 
Within the field of hypnotherapy, I often hear the louder dissenting voices claiming that their own purely subjective experience is somehow more correct than the formalized evidence. Often I hear that the results are all that matter, getting therapeutic results. However, understanding precisely how those results were achieved would enable effective measurement and correct replication and thus advance the field in general. And that's the reason that, for example, expectation is often measured in hypnosis research because the level of expectation is likely to affect the results that occur. Although the two have strong links, in order to measure the effect of hypnosis, we have to take into account factors such as levels of expectation and be aware of how what might affect you know, the results. Uh, likewise, a huge number of other factors exist in a therapy room or classroom that have not been extrapolated or examined without bias. And so making assumptions about how the results were gained may not be an effective way to teach someone else to get the same results. Teaching based upon anecdote and exclusively based upon experience is not necessarily useful and is filled with lots of potential problems. And it brings me nicely onto my next point, you know, because often I hear that practical skills are far more important than knowledge and academic understanding. In fact, I read recently on a website for a hypnotherapy training school that they do not cover much theory in class because they believe that practical skills are far more important and that classes should be used that way. You know, perhaps they've obviously um, not noted that all of the most important surgeons, doctors, physicians, psychiatrists and psychologists in the world had to sit in lectures being taught the underpinning theory prior to practical applications. Glibly referring to certain debates and discussions as merely academic is a common thought, yet further evidence tends to suggest that correct understanding improves outcomes with hypnotherapy. This all seems to make perfect sense to me. You know, so why on earth does it not make you know, sense to large swathes of the field of frontline hypnotherapists? Why is there such a sense of anti-intellectualism and not more adherence to evidence base? Perhaps it is because so much myth, misconception and misinformation is invested in so heavily in this field that it's then mindlessly regurgitated without applying any critical thinking. Maybe it's because the evidence-based message is being dismissed by those regurgitating the myth and misconceptions and their own authority leaves a firm impression upon those who willingly listen. Perhaps it is because it would involve us all having to read more, you know, research more and explore deeper, which doesn't appeal to those who'd rather lazily just do as they were taught. Maybe it's because people do not wish to admit that they do not know best, that it's an incredibly bitter pill to swallow, to think that the notions they hold so dear are flawed and anyone suggesting as much deserves to be sneered at. I think it's wholly irresponsible to sneer at the evidence base we have in this field in the name of being responsible to our clients. I also do not think it's cool or clever to be anti-intellectual, especially if you're supposed to be a forward-thinking, responsible hypnotherapist. I listen to lots of audiobooks, in particular when I'm running and training for running events. I'm currently pausing my listening hours of textbooks and study materials and am indulging in my love of fantasy novels and epic sci-fi. I'm listening to a beautiful and brilliant book called Dawn of Wonder, The Wakening by Jonathan Renshaw, and I'm in love with it. In chapter 22, a group of boys training at an academy in the book are gossiping and reflecting upon the coming days, and a phrase was spoken that rang true with me and the issues at the heart of what I'm talking about today. They quote, 
speculation holds more wonder than fact. Speculation holds more wonder than fact. There it was. Perhaps a a sense of awe-inspiring wonder is causing the anti-intellectualism. Maybe that's it. Maybe the myth, the misconception is speculating about what hypnosis can and cannot do. The allure of the fantastical is why people in these fields reject sobering evidence base. I think they need to consider stopping being so starry-eyed for a wee while, though, especially if we want to gain credibility as a field. Who knows? Why not let's ensure that the field of hypnosis does not turn into a typical US high school 80s movie scenario where the the jocks and athletes and good-looking cheerleaders refer to the well-educated as nerds, dweebs or dorks and attempt to belittle, dissociate, mock or angrily silent the voices of those who desire a more thoroughly educated life. Let's not let the cult of ignorance and anti-intellectualism soak into our field for yet another generation. So thanks, President Obama. You proved some wonderful tonic to me. Do go and replay that clip again. Next up, we have uh, this week's professional discussion. Then I welcome back Dan Jones. When I asked Dan to come and join me on this podcast, I wanted to ask him about his Asperger's and, and we covered that within the interview. I asked Dan about what we could discuss and he stated that one aim he has within his work was to normalise hypnosis. And so we start off discussing that and then move on to discussing his approach, one which has Ericksonian approaches and solution focused approaches at its heart. There's lots to enjoy here. Here is this week's professional discussion with Dan Jones. Enjoy. So I'm back now and still joined with uh, Dan Jones, uh, my guest this week on Hypnosis Weekly here. Um, When Dan and I were communicating prior to uh, us recording this edition of Hypnosis Weekly, uh, one of the things that he mentioned within an email um, to me was was, was about him having a real interest in wanting to normalise hypnosis. And so as well as exploring Dan's approach a little bit today, I thought we'd just talk a little bit about about, about what's meant by that. Dan, welcome back. Please, could you just explain a little bit and just frame our mm. discussion a little bit as to, to what you meant when you were writing that you know you have a you have a focus of interest as far as trying to normalise hypnosis is concerned. Yeah, I think there's quite a large media image of what they think hypnosis is, and I think it's quite clouded with things like uh, you know you've got Darren Brown, who I love Darren Brown's work. Um, but I think that a lot of people think a lot of what he does that's hypnosis. A lot of people think it's hypnosis and then there's stuff that's actually just normal magic tricks. And, um, so I think it's very hard for people to have a perception of what they think hypnosis is. Um, I know a lot of people who think it's somehow linked to the occult and that somehow it's evil and that it's, um, about controlling people and, I don't really like because hypnosis helped me so much personally. Um, as I have said, it's not so much about how it's helped me using hypnotic techniques specifically on myself, but the actual study of hypnosis has helped me. I think that just makes me a bit sort of protective around it and think, uh, you know, hypnosis is something normal. And I think that the scientific community would take it more seriously 
Um, I know there are obviously hypnotic researchers, but I think the scientific community as a wider community would take it more seriously if it was placed within normal kind of, um, like, probably closest linked to social psychology. Um, and so it's trying to say, look, everything that happens in hypnosis happens in everyday life. There's nothing special about it. What might happen more is that you're focused maybe on just that one thing. So, you know, if you're at a movie, you might be watching a film about to put some food in your mouth, say some popcorn. Something happens on the screen that catches your attention. Your hand pauses and hovers in the air, you know, inches from your mouth because you're too busy watching the screen. And then you finish the mouthful once that the screen has calmed down a bit. So you did a bit of an arm levitation and you didn't think of it as an arm levitation and it may have only been for 30 seconds or something. And in hypnosis, you know, I've uh, one guy who said, oh, I don't believe that I'm hypnotized. And I'd hypnotized him lots of times. And he kept saying, no, I don't believe it. I still don't believe it. So <laughs> on video camera, I hypnotized him for an hour and a half. And an hour of that had his arm out straight. And we didn't acknowledge his arm for the whole of the hour intentionally so that if he was faking it for my benefit as a hypnotist, he's not going to keep his arm out for an hour when I'm not paying attention to it. He's going to gradually, slowly lower it down to his yeah. lap and think, Dan won't notice if I lower my arm down. Um, <laughs> and so for him to watch a video back of himself with his arm stuck out straight for an hour was good evidence to him that something happened. You know, he was somehow in a different state. But my view is that's no different to someone watching a film and having your arm levitating there whilst you're watching the film. Yeah. The difference is I was controlling his attention and ignoring the arm that was stuck out. And once it was there and it was comfortably there, there was no reason for it to do anything until attention went back to it. In the same way of, you know, turning down the radio and telling people to get out the car so that you can park the car easier. You know, we do these sort of things naturally. That's a way of narrowing your attention down to the task that you need to do at hand. And all a hypnotist is doing, or whether it's through self-hypnosis or a self-hypnosis track or whatever, however it's happening, all you're doing is trying to narrow that attention down. So I try and I just I want to demystify it and say, look, hypnosis is a normal it's it's a label and that's all it really is. It's a label for a way people seem to respond. There's two elements of hypnosis, the doing hypnosis and the being in hypnosis. Um, and the doing is you can do hypnosis and but technically we all are it all the time anyway. You know, someone gets up and walks to the kitchen and while they stand up and walk to the kitchen, the person on the sofa says, um, oh, while you're heading to the kitchen, could you put the kettle on? Yeah. That, in my view, is doing hypnosis. You're linking two suggestions, two ideas together and having someone do something. If you turn to the person while they sat beside you and said, would you get up and go and put the kettle on for me? They'll probably think, well, no, get up yourself and put the kettle on. So doing hypnosis, I think we do it all the time. Um, and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it, it'll be less effective. Um, so it's just trying to demystify that and say, look, there's nothing magical here. There's nothing odd going on. Um, therapists do hypnosis all the time and don't call it hypnosis. With our friends, we do hypnosis all the time. We just don't think of it as hypnosis. So we do the actual techniques. Um, a good presenter or storyteller will be able to engage your attention and you could be sat in an audience needing the toilet. Suddenly you're engrossed in what the person's telling you and you forget you need the toilet. Mm. You're so engrossed in what's going on. Uh, so I think all these things I would say 
are people doing hypnosis? Yeah. Um, and people being in, uh, if you want to call it a hypnotic state, being in a hypnotic state, although I think that that's the wrong term to use in yeah. the same way that with priming, you don't say they're in an old age state because they walk slower away from a table. All you, you know is that the idea around being older has sunk in and is active as a mind-body thing. It's not just that a few neurons are fired around old age. As a being, they've taken on that idea. And I think that's what happens with hypnosis. So it's just trying to demystify that and say, look, can we just put it into normal, um, you know, into, can we slot it into a, a category of science that already exists and say, what is going on here? Uh, you know, I can't, I regularly try and, uh, debunk my belief about hypnosis um, and try and think, is there something under hypnosis that doesn't fit the idea that it's just like being in social psychology? Um, yeah. Well, well, you know, I mean, I mean, my, my leaning is, mm. is that the sociocognitive perspective as far as hypnosis is concerned and, and explaining mm. hypnosis, you know, if we just sort of di dissect the, the, the expression itself, the socio component is, is just fully embracing, adopting the role um, um, the cognitive mm, mm. is adopting a very specific kind of mindset, and and as as the prolific researcher Theodore Barber would say, mm, you know, mm. I'm, I'm attempting to 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 put you know a, a lot of very ordinary psychological processes together when combined becomes heightened suggestibility within hypnosis, and mm. and yet yet I encounter a lot of a lot of resistance to to that that the sobriety you know mm, by, by mm, being so mm. sober with regards to to such an approach to hypnosis mm. you know people are desperate for for, for it to be framed as mm, as magical because mm. even suggestibility uh, the research is that you're not significantly more suggestible under hypnosis than you are in a situation where someone's wearing a white lab coat and telling you to do something absolutely. or whatever it happens to be. You know, yeah, so absolutely. any authority, you're as suggestible with an authority figure in whatever the environment is as you are when you're being hypnotized. So even the suggestibility starts to fade away once you put it into, you know, once you actually compare it to similar types of things. So where somebody's got a role that they're playing in a context. And um, so I just think of hypnosis to me, using the word hypnosis is a shorthand because it would take ages to say to somebody, right, let's do that thing where I'm going to prime some ideas with you. And, and that would just take ages to <laughs> yeah. explain. Yeah. So use the term hypnosis as a shorthand, like someone could use well, like many psychological problems. You know, the term depression will be a shorthand for what that individual who's got depression means their depression is you know they'll have their own way of being depressed and doing depression and that would just be unique to them based on their life experiences based on what's happened to them based on what their situation is all these different things and their thinking styles all these things but they'll call it depression and everyone else will call it depression and it will be a shared language calling it depression but you're only getting an average idea of what you think that means you're not being specific about it because no two people with depression will have the same experience. Yeah. And I think it's the same with hypnosis, that we use it as a shorthand. Uh, it's not actually that it exists as a, an object or as something. It doesn't 
you know, I don't think of hypnosis as something that exists. I just think of it as it's a convenient way of talking. Mm, mm. Um, um, you know, I, th th this fascinates me, and 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 I just want to just just sort of take a sideways step very slightly. Mm. Um, I, I know that your own your own personal preference with regards to approach with your clients tends to be. Um, Ericksonian and, mm, and solution focused mm. um, and, and when we've spoken quite a lot about Ericksonian approaches and um, I know that you've written books on the subject mm, and mm. so on um, I'm, I'm guessing that, that my my listeners will be less familiar with with what's meant by solution focused um, could you just j j just clarify for those listening mm. um, um, and give a sort of general overview with regards to what it is and then perhaps we can start to explore how you then combine that with Ericksonian um, well my view of solution focused approach is that it's about having an attitude of heading towards some kind of solution focused outcome so some yeah. sort of goal so if yeah. using an example if someone said i want to quit smoking okay. uh, rather than the outcome being i'm going to be a non-smoker as a solution focused person i'd be wanting to know so what is it you actually want if i followed you around once you've successfully had therapy and i follow you around with a video camera and we watch the footage back, what are we going to be watching back? So mm -hmm. we're not going to be watching a non-smoker, we're going to be watching you do what? And so that's what I'd want to know. So that's more about having an attitude towards that outcome yeah. of a solution outcome. I know many solution-focused practitioners seem to just focus more on the actual techniques and using solution-focused techniques. Um, I, I've had conversations with quite a number of solution focused practitioners where we differ in our approach so someone could say something like um oh my life is rubbish everything's all crap everything's been really bad um nothing ever goes right for me and then the solution focused practitioner might say so what were you pleased to notice over the last week then and my view is that totally dismisses everything that the client has just said <coughs> even though that's technically doing solution focused therapy yeah. so my view of solution focused therapy is that it's having an attitude towards solutions not <coughs> doing so it's being solution focused not doing solution focused so my response to it is it sounds like things have been really really difficult how on earth have you coped so yeah. I'm happy to sit here halfway up a mountain while we talk about how you coped and we can carry on the climb once we're ready. You know, once you as a client are ready to move to the next step, then we'll stand up and carry on. So I'm more happy to pause and say, look, this is where you're at at the moment, but I won't go backwards. So if someone says things have been all bad, I'm more likely to ask about how they've coped with it <coughs> so that I'm looking at solutions. I'm looking at finding strengths, finding positives, finding a way forward yeah yeah i won't just dive forward and completely ignore what they're they're actually telling me and what their places that they're coming from as an individual uh, so so solution focused approach is about looking for solutions looking for strengths um there is solution focused jargon as there is with <coughs> every type of approach uh things like miracle questions which is yeah. um you know asking if you woke up tomorrow uh, so i would i 
again, I keep things conversation. I know people who read it off a sheet of paper. Um, I keep it conversational and just say, you know, if you woke up tomorrow and somehow magically a miracle had happened, how would we know? You know, what would be different? What you, what's the first thing you're going to notice? Yeah. Um, so essentially, that's the miracle question: is tell me a day after the problem's gone away, yeah. how things are different. Um, you've got exception questions, so you're assuming problems aren't always there. You know, there are times that the problem doesn't exist. There are times the problem's worse, times the problem's better. You're looking for those variations. Um, scaling, I think, is incredibly important, and it's definitely the one thing um, I use in every session um, in some form or another. And I, how I scale is obviously always client-driven. So I worked with some parents uh, that are having problems with their child, worked with some parents and said, so on a scale of 0 to 10 then, um, with 0 being that things are as bad as they could be and 10 being things are as good as they could be, where would you rate yourself now? And the parents, the dad said, I'm probably pi. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, 3.1415. And he started reading off pi. And the mum said, no, it's the square root of this. I thought, no wonder your child's playing up. <laughs> so I ended up just saying, um, so, and uh, I was telling this uh, on a solution-focused training course. And, I was, and people say, how on earth do you handle that if they can't give you a straight answer? I said, well, I said to them, okay, if standing at the bottom of the stairs means you've still got the problem and standing at the top of the stairs means the problem's fixed, how far up the stairs are you going to get? <laughs> and then they just had to tell me a step. <laughs> so, uh, so I'll find a way around things. But scaling's a really useful thing because then even if there's only been small change, you can acknowledge it. So you can have a scale one to a thousand if you want to have a really small improvement. Um, a little bit like Milton Erickson's thing of if you can get someone to agree that the smallest imperceptible change is possible, even though it's imperceptible, then you can get them to agree that multiple imperceptible changes can happen and that they may not even notice how much they've changed until some future date. And once yeah. you can get someone to agree to that, that, that concept, then that means that they can agree that change is possible before they're consciously aware of it. Uh, so I quite like that sort of idea of you know, change the, the size of the scale and you can have people improving and and you can do sneaky things like if someone says it's a zero everything is as bad as it could possibly be then obviously i respond by saying things like well at least it can't be any worse then and it's very rare to find someone who says you're right it can't be worse normally people say, well it could be he could be out doing this or they could be doing that or this could happen or people are very good at thinking of much worse things uh, that it could be so if they think of something worse, then it's a case of, oh, so it isn't a zero then. <laughs> so yes, now, absolutely. before the end of the session, they've already rated it a one. <laughs> yeah. And all you did was made them acknowledge it could be worse. Uh, so you've, you've been solution-focused. You've moved them forward uh, in their thinking before their situation has changed in any way at all. Um, so and how I link it in with Ericksonian work, I don't really think of it as any different. I think of it as um, we were talking a bit about solution focus before and my view is that one problem with solution focus working when it's done purely is it doesn't come with knowledge of say cognitive behavioral therapy or any of these things it come you can actually attend courses and become a solution focused practitioner where you're not going to know anything about the problems you may treat and my view is that you should use a solution-focused framework within the context of what the research says around whatever the problems are you're treating. 
So uh, if somebody, if you treat people with depression, knowing about depression, knowing what the research is about depression and what helps, what techniques help, means that when you ask solution-focused questions, you can have an awareness of which bits of information the client gives you back are actually the bits of information that are relevant in terms of what research says makes a difference, not just because someone's told you it, yes. you're going to do it. Yes. Um, so that I think everyone should learn the research around whatever they, the, the, the actual proper knowledge around whatever they treat and use a solution-focused approach as a general, I'm being solution-focused, as a general kind of way of let's move towards some sort of outcome, some sort of a goal. Let's not dwell on problems. Let's not keep rehashing it and going over and over it. Let's instead, so um, the example of the person with a bad week, I could say, oh, that sounds really awful. Tell me more about it. And all I'm doing is taking them deeper into it. Yes. It's better for me to respond by saying, oh, that sounds like it's really difficult. How do you cope? Mm. And then getting coping strategies even if they say i didn't cope say well i think it's really impressive then that you managed to make it here today so even if they say they didn't cope you're using utilization of well you're here (laughs) so so somehow you've it's not been entirely dire you've made it to a therapy session um so i think that's far more positive and i think it's about having that but mix it in with actual proper therapeutic knowledge not just you know the solution focused stuff on its own yes um to yeah. me, that's a very important thing. Yeah, within within the solution focused questions, and I know that um, um, you know I, I I I use a lot of scaling types of questions, but probably mm. in more of a kind of cognitive behavioural type of approach. But I remember um, I'm watching a demonstration once where um, um, somebody was using solution focused styled questions and and had asked, you know. Um, um, on a scale of um, 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 zero to ten, you know, typically where where is your discomfort at, for example? Mm. Um, um, and the guy had said five or something. And 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 that classic scaling question of well, well, what 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 stops? You know, that the, the solution focused component was well what stops it being four um, mm, um mm. You, you know and really really wanted to celebrate the five rather than um, rather than consider it to be a major problem for example mm, mm. so so dan how does that then how do you then incorporate um that kind of uh, a love of the ericksonian approach that you quite clearly have that comes across in a lot of your work how mm. do you then sort of incorporate that into um, um the, the the solution focused um, um, ethos that you have as well um, well the main thing is from the Ericksonian point of view that the client is the one that's the centre of attention during the therapy session they're the one that's important and the outcomes and everything are all important for the client it's not about me um, and so if a client really did want to go back and talk about something that would overrule me doing the solution focused stuff and moving forward if they said actually i think this is going to be helpful for me well then let's do it if that's what you think is going to be helpful um i will sometimes say to clients like when they say i just want to know why i will say you know do you want to know why or do you want to look at getting better you know, they're, they're often two different questions um i love learning about myself and about other people and what have you um but there's a difference between learning and understanding yourself and understanding why you're the way you are and altering the way you are yeah. so 
I, I like to make sure that's clear with the client what it is they're actually wanting. Um, but generally, I love from Ericksonian stuff, the utilization, all the observation stuff. Um, and I definitely use a lot more language techniques. So I'm trying not to say all the language patterns as such, but language techniques. So, for example, most solution-focused practitioners won't use presuppositions. They don't get taught presuppositions generally on most of the solution-focused training courses. They get taught uh, a lot of solution-focused questions, but not presuppositions, which to me doesn't make sense. I'd rather say, so how will things be different and how are things going to change than what do you think would be different? Mm -hmm. I'd rather use terms like will instead of would. And um, So for me, I incorporate those elements of Ericksonian working of using things like presuppositions because i think that way i'm implying a general trend of well i'm expecting success i'm expecting things to work you know i'm expecting so if i i don't say um so have there been any exceptions to that then Mm. because that means well they might not have been (laughs) yes so but i know it's people take the easy answer so clients are just going to say no there hasn't (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah. so um, I don't want to give them that easier way out uh, I want them to think about the answer so I'll say uh, so tell me about some of the exceptions mm. and it's a totally different you know, same sort of question but totally different way of approaching it and so I might then sit there for a couple of minutes in silence waiting um, and, but people will come up with things because they think it's almost like well it's expected you know, I'm implying they're there I'm implying the exceptions are there, so it's just a case of finding them. Um, and then I might have to use some techniques or, you know, conversationally, not like language pattern techniques or anything, but just uh, to encourage them to find those exceptions in some cases. But normally silence is enough. Uh, people find it so uncomfortable. They'll uh, find whatever they have to if it means that they can get out of the silence. Um, so I use a lot of the Ericksonian language patterns like presuppositions and I'll use vague language where needed if I don't know enough about something um, to be able to go into it mm. so so I'll use some of those bits I, I definitely use um, metaphors analogies all things like that as a way of laying down patterns normally doing a lot of uh, nowadays you'd call it priming Erickson called it seeding um, of giving examples before I ask for something so that their mind is already thinking a little bit on that direction, on that wavelength, so that by the time we get to talk about it, I've already given an idea of it, either based on, um, oh, yeah, I had a client in fairly recently who did something, and you know, whether it's an example, that kind of example, or whether it's um, a story or whatever it might be. Um, I'll do lots of telling stories, doing metaphors, giving um, examples of similar types of clients and successes they've had um, as a way of uh, again I see I see this as a normal thing that people do if I go to a job interview and an interviewer asks me a question and I glaze over and think I've absolutely no idea what you just meant by that question (laughs) Um, and then they say they see that I'm (laughs) looking like I'm a, a rabbit trapped in the headlights or something and then some one interviewing me leans over and says you know for example if and then they give a little example. Oh, that's what you mean. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I don't see it any different than someone doing that. All yeah. I'm doing is I know that that happens. 
whereas an interviewer may not realize that that ha- may not think about it as oh that's something that happens they just do the interview and when they see it they respond by giving you that whereas i would give you that before i ask the question so that you already have an idea of the angle we're going to be taking mm. uh, so so that's how i sort of incorporate the ericksonian stuff um i don't really do anything that looks like or sounds flashy or anything like that i just think it's a case of the observation utilization and some of the basic things like using presuppositions and assuming that you know success and assuming that there are these bits in someone's experience um i think are really useful additions to a solution focused approach mm, mm. um you know what i could i could just listen to this and just probe on this subject for hours and hours, Dan. Um, I'm, 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 but we're, we're there. We're out of time. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to see if I can twist your arm and use all my <laughs> best persuasion techniques upon you to see if we can get you to come back on um, um, on the show at a later date and just really get focused on, mm. on, on some of the things that we've spoken about here today. Um, um, really, all that leaves for me to say today is thank you ever so much for coming and joining me on Hypnosis Weekly. Uh, Dan Jones. Thank you. Thanks. I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. I spent some time chatting with Dan off air and I really could have stayed talking with him for hours. Really lovely, really engaging, clearly loves this field, very generous with his time and sharing of information. There's a link to the website of Dan Jones over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. So this week's uh, evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week is this. Hypnosis outperforms cognitive therapy and exposure therapy in dealing with public speaking anxiety. Yes, indeed, a study of public speaking anxiety provided participants with cognitive therapy and in vivo exposure, um, um, or both of those with hypnosis. The hypnosis group performed better than the no treatment group and better than the CBT alone group. And that's a study conducted by Schoenberger and colleagues back in 1997. And I hasten to add that this study ranked as showing hypnosis to be possibly efficacious according to the the strict uh, Chambliss and Holland criteria for empirically supported treatments as reviewed by Walk back in 2008. There's a link to the behaviour therapy journal entry for this study at this episode's page at the Hypnosis Weekly website. So I do have uh, many more exciting guests that I'll welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. I have some titans of the field and I have some people with some very differing stances to mine. Uh, We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next time out, I welcome Florida-based hypnotherapist Mr. Daniel Cleary. We discuss how a tragic motorcycle accident shaped his career and his approach to pain management. That's uh, all in next week's show. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions, questions, so please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again to Dan Jones. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. <laughs>